to be honest, maybe psychology is just like an evil way of tricking people to like you. Yeah. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of To Be Honest. I'm your host Amy. And I'm Grace. And today we had the idea of bringing an episode about psychological tips and tricks. You know, who knows, maybe there'll be life hacks and little nuggets of wisdom that we'll find that'll actually help us in our day-to-day lives. Yeah, like psychology is really integrated with all of the random self-improvement life hack um, mm-hmm. type of tips. Mm-hmm. And then also psychology, it's just like a pseudoscience, right? But it's still a science. So it adds some credibility into these tips and tricks that may have just seemed like someone was talking out of their ass. <laughs> so today we've prepared some different psychological tips from a variety of different topics for you. I checked out this article, which was kind of more general. It wasn't really specific on anything, but it's just about getting a leg up in life. So <laughs> the first one up there was interesting i think i've heard of it before but it says when you're meeting someone you should check their eye color and then make a note of it because some random study says that people who do that come off as more charismatic and i guess i can kind of notice that just like the eye contact looking into their Mm -hmm. beautiful eyes getting lost in them for a moment i can imagine (laughs) how some people would enjoy that (laughs) and and another one is not rewarding yourself after you complete a task which is one that's like a little iffy because I saw this other article that said the opposite thing, but it says that when you tell people to do things for, um, for reward, then that disturbs their sense of intrinsic motivation and stops them from enjoying the activity for its own sake, which I kind of agree with, but I kind of also don't agree with because with piano, for example, I was kind of coerced into playing piano, but even so... I wouldn't have started it without that coercion, you know? Um, And then I ended up liking it anyways. So... I also feel like it depends a lot on the circumstances. Like, I was listening to this other podcast, and one of the hosts there has, like, very young children that he's now raising. And he was talking about how, especially when kids are young, it's kind of important to... Or... I guess kids could be easily influenced when they're young. And so if you say like, oh, if you help me clean up, then you'll get a candy. You're kind of telling them that the candy is the reward, I guess, in a way. You're kind mm-hmm. of telling them that you're doing it for the candy and it makes like the candy feel like this really cool reward thing. Whereas if you use the same kind of excitement to tell them like maybe the reward is I don't know singing the cleanup song with you or like this particular person made it a routine with his son to clean up right before bed and like now there are nights apparently where um he cleans up for his son and then afterwards his son comes out of the bath or whatever and is like I wanted to help daddy clean up which is just super sweet but like I feel like especially with younger children it's really easy to establish what a reward is and what a task is and so if you make um the reward seem like something that you're getting after the task then I can see 
how that would lower someone's intrinsic motivation, but I don't know how much this works in application. No, okay, wait, that's interesting. Actually, it reminded me, you know, in my family, or my dad especially, is really interested in uh, getting high-achieving children, and Mm -hmm. there was this one girl who was really, really smart, and her mother actually, she was like, oh, I'm not going to let you go to school. I'm not going to let you study. <laughs> she, I, I forgot, like, what was the other side of things. But basically, she was using school and studying as reward. Like, she framed it in a way that goes oh. like, oh, if you don't do, do this, I won't let you go to school or whatever. <laughs> Which sounds so stupid <laughs> when you say it. But I think, I, I mean, I guess it worked in her case, at least, because her kid turned out great. Um, and then on the other side of things, like for, um, in my family and stuff, it's always been like, oh, you have to study or else you cannot get this reward you want. So it's always been like a punishment or like something I have to do in order to get somewhere. I remember like it was my birthday and I didn't do my math homework or something like that. And my dad was like, oh, if you don't do your math homework, I'm not letting you go see a movie, which I had planned with your friends. But anyways, I did my math homework, but of course now like would have that negative association in my mind. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, and the last one is to plan something special on Wednesdays. This is one that's kind of out of pocket, but I actually like a lot and I might try doing. Yeah, because it says everyone always looks forward to the weekend, but it always seems so far away from a Monday. So just plan something Mm -hmm. small to do on Wednesday, like treat yourself to frozen yogurt or set up a movie date with a friend. And it doesn't have to take that much time, but at least you're going to have something to look forward to at the beginning of the week. And then the week will fly by Mm -hmm. right before you know it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, wait, this is actually actually such a good tip yeah okay because i feel like especially recently i've been very much looking forward to the weekends because um my brother moved away and he and his dog come and visit over the weekends so like i get very hyped up for the weekends but like a lot of the time also i feel like especially now that school's chilled down quite a bit um I actually have a lot of time on weekdays and I feel like it'd be really cool to spend more time with friends on weekdays because like especially Amy is going to be in uni next year and so we might not see each other as much so you should take advantage of this time that's right kind of linking on to the idea of making your weekdays more fun and making school more fun because for us students school is what takes over our weekdays I think Um, I've got some studying tips for you all. So the first one that I found is elaborative interrogation. And that sounds like a big word. But this is actually something that I feel like I've been trying to apply to my life for a while. And it's basically just asking yourself why. Like, why is this true? Um, Why does it exist? What function does it serve? And like, can it be proved? How can it be proved? And just asking yourself, like, how it connects to everything else. Because if you tie new information to your baseline of knowledge, it actually helps you improve your memory. Because instead of kind of building new towers, this is a strange analogy, but like instead of placing down blocks everywhere and not getting very high up, you're adding blocks on top of what you've already built so you can get a higher tower. Um, and I feel like I've been trying to practice this a lot because it's easier for my brain to accept things if I can see why it's true. Um, but I guess also sometimes I found that you also have to accept something without seeing the proof. So Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a double, double edged sword because, 
Um, for example, with the quadratic formula, we learned this, I think, when I was in grade nine and like one of my friends and I were just trying to figure out why it was true and our math teacher had always encouraged this he was always like we need to like just question why things are true and find a good explanation for them and the textbook gave us a pretty good explanation but it was more of like how to derive the quadratic formula and even though I could replicate the process I didn't understand how it fit like where the numbers came into play and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but I found that after just familiarizing myself and using it over and over for a while I eventually just like accepted it for what it was and then this led me to think because I feel like especially when you're younger you accept a lot of things just for what they are like words colors meanings and so it might be hard to always apply this elaborative interrogation, but I feel like it does help a lot, especially when you're trying to learn a new concept. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, I totally get that one too. Especially, like, for me, that was with chemistry, because wh- I remember when I first started learning chemistry, I was like, what the frick? I don't understand any of this. <laughs> and then you really just need to get used to the world of chemistry, I guess. And at the start, I was... It's kind of bad, actually, because I was a lot more inquisitive about the nature of chemistry and everything at the start. Like, I actually tried answering, why does this happen? Oh, why does this happen? But that gets really hard after a while because um, a lot of sciences are built on these much more complex concepts, and they're interconnected with, like, everything. So if you're going to study on why this happens, then there's this whole other explanation about this other thing that happens and how that influences that. And there are also so many other factors that can um, result in the same effect. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've really gotten... have I've really needed to get used to just sometimes accepting truths as they are, in sciences, which was, like, not what was really inherent to me at the start, but it has helped my grades, (laughs) because (laughs) I would just waste so much time trying to figure out the actual reason behind everything, and then I would never really get there, and then it would just make the concepts so much more confusing, but at the same time, I feel like the more you study and the more you expand your breadth of knowledge, then you'll eventually be able to understand those um, concepts better anyways and answer those questions eventually yeah I definitely I definitely agree with the why 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 um, strategy though because yeah it is very effective on making sure that the information is tied to other concepts you've learned mm-hmm. Not... yeah exactly and another studying technique that I use a lot is self-explanation so basically just teaching it to yourself mm-hmm. and I actually wasn't sure if I would bring this up because I was like, I feel like you've already talked about this, but I did find some new interesting knowledge. Um, there was actually this professor called Mikichi who said that instead of summarizing what it says on the page, you create meaning for it and often attach associations to it, triggering memories in your brain that help you remember it. And I feel like I've um, experienced this too, where a lot of the time when you're explaining things, you often experience problems, I guess, and parts mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, I'm not so sure about this. And then it's a good prompter to revisit some of the information and make sure that you really know um, everything that you've learned. And also, 
it's just being able to explain it to yourself in the simplest terms because obviously when you're teaching someone you want to make it really easy to understand and you're probably not going to use these big elaborative words and I've also noticed this um I don't I don't know if this is an actual thing but I've noticed this pattern where a lot of the time when you're researching you find these really complex studies with a lot of these big words and then you have to read through it and make sense of it in your brain and translate it into simple English and simple terms that you can actually understand and then when you're writing it down again for like an essay you're probably going to add some embellishments again mm-hmm. so it's kind of interesting that process of gathering information translating it and then re complexing (laughs) and another tip that I found from the same article is distributed practice so this just means like do little and often and take regular breaks whenever necessary and I feel like this actually helps me a lot with like not only memorizing things for school learning information also strangely practicing piano Um, where I'll go through one section, I'll practice one section, and then I'll practice another section, and then a third section, and then I'll go back to the first section, and I'll just, like, pick out a few sections and then practice them in a rotation kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I always find that that helps me um, practice a lot more effectively. And also, not scheduling, like, two-hour-long piano practice sessions, but just, like, going to the piano at random times in the day. Obviously, I can't do this as much, mm-hmm. but I did this a lot during quarantine, and it helped a lot, where um, I could suddenly, you know, I had the whole day at home, so I could just go to the piano whenever I felt like it, play for, like, I don't know, 20 minutes, and then leave. And it doesn't really leave me feeling fatigued or, like, burnt out at all after playing Mm -hmm. and I'll be able to return later with a fresh mindset and I feel like it also helps me retain um the technique better like the moment you said two hour practice like my mind just went oh (laughs) yeah and also in terms of studying it also helps you lead a more balanced lifestyle because not only does it help you retain the information that you've learned, but also if you're taking breaks in between, then you can do other things like exercise or read or just do things that you like, um, which does help a lot. The only problem-ish that I find with it, not so much with piano, strangely, but with studying, is that sometimes I find it hard to get back into something if you've left it for a while. Maybe not so much with studying, but like definitely with writing essays when you're on a train of thought and you just want to keep going. Um, So yeah, so I guess it depends on the situation. And it was interesting because I was reading this other article that Amy suggested by Cognition Today, and it also said, focus intensely, then take a break. And I just feel like the way they worded that was very interesting because usually you hear things like the Pomodoro method or like uh, stuff like that, but you don't hear as much like focus intensely than take a break. Um, But anyway, the tagline they had was rest in knowing rest is always near. And they actually said um, indulge in distractions knowing they'll help boost your next spurt of productivity. And typically focus for periods of 90 to 120 minutes. Um, 
and like don't feel bad about playing a game on your phone or doing nothing and just do all the things that you were told not to do at work because overall it'll make your working time more productive and I don't know exactly how true this is um I don't know if I could do nothing or if I could play a game on my phone without like getting sucked into it but I know that this definitely works with like planning things with friends or um yeah planning things with friends because I feel like if you shorten the amount of time in your day and you have like a set two hours where you're going to hang out with your friends it shortens the rest of your day and we're gonna talk about this later but there's this thing called the Parkinson's theory sorry Parkinson's law effect Parkinson's law something like that yeah (laughs) Parkinson's effect which I um dub the sponge effect but basically it says that you'll soak up all the time or you'll use as much time for task as you have so by taking away some of the time you have for that task then you're going to be more productive in the time that you're actually working Mm-hmm. And while we're on the topic of studying, of course, we got to talk about productivity. We were definitely talking about this before, but willpower is a finite resource. A lot of the times, it's not actually what we think it is, which is like forcing yourself to do the things you don't want to, because then that's going to make you successful. But a lot of the times, it's a lot more nuanced, like shifting your environment around to make it easier to do that work and building healthy habits for yourself and reducing the amount of decisions you make. And then also, like, willpower, it just, it also lowers your confidence because every time you have a failure, you just attribute it to yourself and your own character and your own worth. So it says that every day you start with a limited supply of willpower and every decision and every temptation you resist depletes your willpower. So this is a term that Wahlmeister calls ego depletion. So it recommends you conserve your willpower so you can use it for decisions and actions that really matter. Another one is kind of tied to that, which is decision fatigue. The classic example is Mark Zuckerberg and his everyday fit. And then there's another one that they <laughs> mentioned, which is pretty interesting. They looked at prisoners and the um, earliness of their paroles, and it showed that 70% of prisoners who had their parole early in the morning got approved, while um, late at night, only 10% got approved, which is a very big difference. And then they concluded that it was just because a lot of the judges or whatever, at that time, at the end of the day, they're already done with it, and decision-making was out of the window but yeah it's a good thing to keep in mind does that mean that it's better to sub like is that i don't know proof or an argument that it's better to submit early university applications oh (laughs) yeah actually it probably would be okay this is another one that hits close to home the title is procrastination is a coping mechanism So it says that procrastination is usually dismissed as a time management issue, and there's an assumption that procrastinators are lazy or unmotivated, but that's not the cause. Procrastinators are often happy to work, just not on problems that actually matter. Because if you dig deeper into the root cause of procrastination, then oftentimes it's just an issue of self-regulation or emotion regulation rather than them being lazy or unmotivated. Students who believed that they were going to succeed were more likely to start a task than students who felt like they were going to fail. So that means that if you put off difficult tasks, that's not necessarily because you're lazy, but just because you're scared of the task. So for like people who say, oh, instead of doing my assignment, I just decided to clean up my whole room 
that is a symptom of you procrastinating, right? Because doing that task makes you feel bad. So before you use time management tactics to solve your procrastination habits, you should solve the emotional foundation. Mm -hmm. And also, I totally agree with everything that you just said. Um, I think that also sometimes procrastination can become a habit to the point where it's just kind of in your comfort zone Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like, oh, I know I'll finish the assignment by its due date. I just won't start it until later. This is definitely a camp that I've fallen into too. Yeah. So I agree with what Amy said about like, it doesn't mean that you're lazy or something. It just means that it's either like, uh... Um, comfortable habit that you've fallen into or just like an emotional state (laughs) that you need to take care of yeah okay and it also mentions this thing called the hawthorne effect which states that people are more productive when they're being observed so it recommends you work in a public Mm -hmm. environment where you're being monitored and this one is very true for me like i love my library and Whenever I actually need to be productive, productive, I always go there instead of my house because the example that pops into my mind is I cannot watch YouTube at the library. That is taboo. But at my home, like, of course, it's really easy to just start watching YouTube. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think that this is a really useful form of external motivation, just kind of like being monitored. Um, I definitely experienced something similar with the programs that I was in where um, the external motivation was like I really wanted to do a good job on my projects and have my presentations live up to the expectations of Grace presentations. Mm -hmm. And I never realized how much that played a role until I graduated from the program that I was in because I suddenly like... Everyone around me didn't care as much about their presentations either. So then that kind of like that environment kind of like rubbed off on me also. And I was just like, I mean, I don't have to make it that cool or that aesthetic. And like by not putting my all into those presentations and into those projects, I enjoyed the process of making them a lot less. So yeah, environment definitely plays a huge role in like external motivation. Mm-hmm. And to end us off, I have an article um, <laughs> by Science Alert titled something along the lines of how to get people to like you, like psychological tricks to get people to like mm-hmm. you. So this little tidbit is from Science Alert, and I feel like it leads nicely into what we're going to talk about. It's hard to say exactly why you like someone. Maybe it's their goofy smile, maybe it's their razor-sharp wit, or maybe it's simply that they're easy to be around. You just like them. But scientists generally aren't satisfied with answers like that, and they've spent years trying to pinpoint the exact factors that draw one person to another. And for me, the kind of um, the kind of per- people that I always look up to, like one of the main types of people that I really look up to, are people who absolutely radiate positive energy, and it's just so inspiring and so infectious. Mm. Like um, my math teacher was hyping up this one course, um, his geometry course for so long, and he's so excited to teach it. Like, today's the first day of the course, and yesterday he emailed all of us, and he was just so excited. He was like, okay, guys, you're on the brink of starting the most, 
life-changing course of your entire high school career and I'm talking about dun 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 geometry and he just like was like I'm so excited to teach this course I hope you can tell blah 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 and you can just like you can feel it and that made me instantly so much more motivated and so much more excited for school the next day so I was like oh my gosh I have this course to look forward to and I don't know some people just have that energy where it's just so inspiring and so infectious and it just makes me so happy Mm. and like that's what I want to be like so cute oh and also really interesting okay Mm -hmm. because like that made me think the people I look up to are really confident people and then like sociable people and people who who aren't afraid of speaking up and stuff like that so I think like that's probably related to the type of people we want to become anyways go on yeah (laughs) Oh my gosh, that is interesting. (laughs) But this article actually gave some tips, so hopefully I can become that person that I'm striving to be. Number one was try to display positive emotions. There's this idea called emotional contagion, and it basically describes what happens when people are strongly influenced by the moods of other people, kind of like what Amy was saying earlier. Um... There's like this research paper from the Ohio University and University of Hawaii, which basically talks about how people can feel unconsciously, um, people can unconsciously feel the emotions of those around them. So like, even if you can't see someone smiling, you can still feel that happy energy that they're giving off. Mm -hmm. So the first tip they have for us is be warm and competent, which being you know, sounds interesting. I bet you want to hear more. <laughs> <laughs> and this actually ties in really nicely to what Amy and I were saying about like me wanting to be really um, optimistic, and then Amy wanting to be someone who's like confident. But anyway, Princeton University psychologists proposed the stereotype content model, and it's based on a theory where people judge others based on their warmth and competence. So if you portray yourself as warm, so like non-competitive and friendly, people will feel like they can trust you. Whereas if you seem competent, for example, you have high economic or educational status, they're more inclined to respect you. And there's this Harvard psychologist that says, Um, Especially in business settings, it's important to demonstrate warmth first and then competence because you want them to trust you first and then show show people that they deserve your trust and that you're going to be competent and that they can, like, rely on you. Which kind of, like, led me to the question of would you rather seem warm slash be trusted or seem really competent and have people respect you for it i mean okay <laughs> one of the descriptors that people use for me i think is warm so that is mm-hmm. probably what i am but like mm-hmm. the type three in me wishes i was confident <laughs> like the confident one yeah i do mm-hmm. kind of like strive to come off as really smart to other people just because it's part of my personality a little bit what about you <laughs> okay I I can definitely relate to, like, I want to be both. And I feel like this is kind of reflected by my whole relationship with the Hogwarts houses. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like I went through a phase where I was like, I'm a Ravenclaw, even though I took the Pottermore test and I got Hufflepuff, but I was in denial. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm a Ravenclaw. I'm smart. And so (laughs) back then, I feel like I definitely would have been, like, competent. But I feel like since I've embraced my hoofly poofness... 
since like even the Hogwarts houses are so stereotypical, they're like either you're nice or you're smart or you're brave or you're evil. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding, Slytherins. I love you. <laughs> but since I feel like since I've embraced my Hufflepuff side and because I've attributed that so much more to my personality and since that's more aligned with the person I'm striving to be now, I feel like I might choose the first option possibly, Mm. but obviously I still want to come off as competent. (laughs) And Okay, that leads nicely into the third point, which is reveal your flaws from time to time. And there's something called the Prattful effect, which is like, if they believe you're a competent person, people will like you more after you make a mistake, because revealing that you aren't perfect makes you more relatable and vulnerable towards the people around you. And it's almost like lowering the standards a little sometimes because I feel like when the standards are too high you get really discouraged and you give up like if everyone around you is super super good at everything and they never make a mistake then I feel like it's a lot easier to feel discouraged and feel like oh I'm never gonna catch up but I thought that that was really interesting um and there's this researcher from the University of Texas that discovered this phenomenon Um, when he studied how simple mistakes can affect perceived attraction. He basically had a bunch of students listen to a tape recording of people taking a quiz, and when people did well in the quiz but spilled coffee at the end of the interview, the students rated them higher on likability than when they didn't spill coffee or, like, you know, did well on the quiz but didn't spill coffee, which I thought was really interesting because... Um, we talk a lot, even in our last episode, we were like, it's okay to be vulnerable, right? (laughs) (laughs) And like, I feel like being vulnerable is something that I've been working on a lot. And I feel like this is just very reassuring, um, especially as someone who's like afraid of being judged slash a bit of a perfectionist. It's like, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay. Mm -hmm. That makes me feel a bit better about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even though I think I might need to tone it down a tad I think it's still, like, a pretty big part of my personality, so it's not going anywhere anytime soon. (laughs) And, like, similarly, I found this one in the General Psychological Tips article, too, but it talks about the Ben Franklin's effect, which is saying that when you do someone a favor, you'll eventually like them more than you did before. So, So something like your brain dislikes cognitive dissonance and fights against situations where our beliefs and actions don't match up. So when you do something nice for someone when you don't have particularly warm feelings for them, then your brain will decide that that recipient of your help must be a cooler person than you first thought. (laughs) So maybe I'll just go around and ask everyone to do things for me now. That sounds like the move. Well, I'm... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. (laughs) Okay, you go do that. Well, Amy's going around her class asking all her classmates for pencils. If you want an excuse to pretend that you're already busy and not have Amy ask you for a pencil, (laughs) you can head on over to our Instagram to leave some feedback on the episode. Our Instagram handle is tobehonestapod. And as always, thank you so much for your support. If you want to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating, it would be much appreciated. And share this podcast to anyone who you think would be interested. Without further ado... We'll see you next week.